In February 1858, the United States Senate was debating a new bill from the House. They knew that the Army, under the command of Colonel Albert Sidney Johnston, was on its way to Utah to put down the reported Mormon Rebellion. Now, President James Buchanan was asking Congress to approve a second army of regular troops to send to Utah. While the Republic was quickly unraveling between the North and the South, everyone seemed to agree that an army would teach the Mormon fanatics a lesson they would not soon forget. While the speeches proceeded, a lone senator sat quietly whittling at his desk. He was dressed in a Cherokee blanket and a Jaguar pelt. One observer described him as a magnificent barbarian. The senator was Sam Houston of Texas, the former governor of the Lone Star State and the victor of the Texas War of Independence. And in 1858, Sam Houston would take another lonely stand, urging caution, restraint, and a respect for the rights of the nation's Latter-day Saints. On today's episode, we remember Sam Houston in the Utah War. I'm Nate Olson, and this is Adventures in Mormon History. Sam Houston, like most Americans of his time, saw the Latter-day Saints in their practice of plural marriage with a mix of fascination and horror. But Houston was nothing if not a maverick. As a boy, he had run away from home and was adopted into the Cherokee Nation. He became fluent in the Cherokee language, and throughout his career as a statesman, he would constantly stand for justice to the country's native peoples. In 1836, he commanded the Texas Army in its War of Independence against Mexico, and in the Battle of San Jacinto in April of 1836, he destroyed the Mexican Army under the personal command of General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, winning independence for the Republic of Texas. By 1856, Texas had been admitted to the United States and had elected Sam Houston to represent it in the Senate. That same year, LDS Apostle George A. Smith came to the Capitol to lobby for Utah statehood. The gregarious George A. met with Sam Houston, and according to one account, the two became fast friends. They sat up late talking into the night, and when George A. became cold, Houston took a Navajo blanket from his parcel and draped it over him. But Houston reacted most warmly to the Latter-day Saints, who roughly 20 years before had fought with him in the Texas War of Independence. One of these men was Seth Blair. At the age of 17, Blair had joined hundreds of Tennessee volunteers who answered Houston's call to fight for the Texas Republic. Blair campaigned throughout the war and rose to the rank of major in the Texas Rangers. After the war, Blair settled in DeWitt County, where he first encountered Latter-day Saint missionaries Preston Thomas and George Martindale. He was baptized and moved with his family to the Utah Territory. In December of 1857, an army under the command of Colonel Albert Sidney Johnston was then camped for the winter in the ashes of Fort Bridger. But Seth Blair looked to the coming spring with dread, knowing that the springtime thaw would open a mountain pass for the army to march into Salt Lake Valley. What they would do once they arrived was anyone's guess. It was then that Blair took up his pen to write an appeal to his former commander, Senator Sam Houston. Blair's letter gives us an insight into the fears that Johnston's army raised among the Latter-day Saints and what they imagined would happen once the army arrived. He wrote, In my heart, I believe you the only senator who sits in Congress, who dares lift up his voice in opposition to the public opinion, Unheard, we are condemned. Without cause, we have been disenfranchised. As traitors we are branded, 
As dogs, we are to be hung. Our wives ravished by the mercenary soldiers under the Stars and Stripes. Our daughters seduced by the United States officers. Our cities pillaged. Our fields laid in ashes. Our altars and our temples polluted. Blair then promised that rather than submit to such an outcome, that they would leave everything in ashes at the approach of the invading army. He closed with the plea, I beseech you then, as one who loves the Union and despises the life that would tamely submit to tyrannical rule, to raise your voice to stop the bigoted crusade against Governor Young and his people. Stay the floodgates that public robbers have raised to drain the treasure in sending soldiers to murder an innocent and law-abiding people. Sam Houston was deeply troubled by this letter. He remembered Blair well. It wasn't every 17-year-old that rose to the rank of major. Houston first approached the Buchanan administration with a recommendation to send a fact-seeking commission to investigate the state of affairs in Utah before the arrival of troops. But his request fell on deaf ears. The administration had Johnston's army almost within striking distance of the Salt Lake Valley. But now they proposed to send an additional army of regular troops to support the first. On February 1, 1858, the Senate was debating the new army bill, which had already passed in the House. But Houston was nothing if not dogged. The Buchanan administration would not send a fact-finding commission, so he would find a way to derail the plan to send a second army. That morning, Houston sat at his desk, whittling with his penknife. Feigning disinterest as both North and South generally agreed on the need to put down the Latter-day Saint Rebellion. But at last, Houston rose to speak. Now, he understood he would lose his credibility if he appeared too friendly to the Mormons. So instead, he took a different line of attack. Why not raise volunteers, he asked, instead of sending regular troops? Is there a reason that we need a large standing army? Houston struck a nerve with this line of criticism. Relationships between the northern and southern states were already quickly unraveling, and Houston capitalized on this mutual distrust. A large standing army might be used against the Mormons, but who might become its next target? And what Houston knew, but left unsaid, is that if the Senate decided on his plan for volunteers, it would require a new bill from the House before any volunteers could be raised, trained, equipped, and it would lead to a delay of months before a second army would be sent to Utah. This would give his fact-finding commission a chance. The Senate adjourned for the day without a vote. Ten days later, the Senate again took up Buchanan's army bill. Houston again argued that volunteers were perfectly adequate to the job and there was no need to send regular army troops. But this time, Houston tried another line of attack. He began asking who was most responsible for the recent troubles in Utah, and he ventured that maybe the federal appointees that Buchanan had selected, men like the infamous W.W. Drummond, had actually started this whole conflict. Some of these men, he argued, were worse than the Mormons themselves, and whose moral texture and complexion might well reflect disgrace upon the Mormons. It may be that such persons incited the Mormons to desperation. Houston argued that volunteers were best for another reason too. Jokingly, he pointed out that volunteers would be active, sprightly, animated young men who would go into that country and break up the Mormons by settling down there and marrying Mormon ladies, and thus 
break up the whole establishment by taking away their principal capital. <laughs> he then countered another claim brought against the Mormons, that they were in league with the native tribes to oppose the federal government. Sam Houston would have none of this. True, he said, the Indians were more friendly to the Mormons than to the federal government, but why was this? Because the Indians were killed when they wanted peace, he thundered, and the Mormons have not committed a corresponding wrong upon them. The Indians will always go where friendship and justice are accorded them. The Senate again adjourned without a vote on the bill. Now, on February 25th, the Senate again convened to debate the particulars of the Army Bill, and this time, Sam Houston unloaded his third argument against the Utah War. Now, among all the senators, maybe among the entire federal government, Sam Houston was alone in seeing the likely result of an army campaign against the Latter-day Saints. That is, that it would descend into a bloodbath. Houston knew firsthand how a small band of determined men could defeat a much larger force. During the Battle of San Jacinto, he led his men, famous for both their courage and their almost total lack of discipline, against a much larger Mexican force. Before the assault, Houston had fired his troops with the battle cry, Remember the Alamo! And within a matter of minutes, the Mexican army was shattered, with unarmed survivors running for their lives. But San Jacinto had taught Sam Houston another, uglier lesson about the nature of war. It turned out, when a small band of determined men believed they were fighting for their homes, it was much easier to fire them up, to attack and kill the enemy, than it was to rein them in once the fighting was over. And though the Battle of San Jacinto lasted only minutes, the Texas soldiers would spend the next hours chasing down the fleeing enemy, shooting, stabbing, and cudgeling them to death as they begged for mercy. And Sam Houston and his officers were powerless to stop them. Possibly with these bloody scenes in memory, Sam Houston now addressed his fellow senators with a salutary reminder of what a war with the Mormons might look like. If the Mormons have to be subdued, and God forfend us all from such a result, and the Valley of the Salt Lake is to be ensanguined with the blood of American citizens, I think it will be one of the most fearful calamities that has befallen this country. I deprecate it as an intolerable evil. The army will find Salt Lake, if they ever reach it, a heap of ashes. Just as sure as we are now standing in the Senate, these Mormon people, if they fight at all, they will fight desperately. They are defending their homes. They are fighting to prevent the execution of threats that have been made, which touch their hearths and their families, and depend upon it. They will fight until every man perishes before he surrenders. I say, your men will never return, but their bones will whiten the valley of the Salt Lake. If war begins, the very moment one single drop of blood is drawn, it will be the signal of extermination. Houston's speech was a success, and the army bill was defeated in the Senate. Now, this didn't do anything to stop the progress of Johnston's army, which was already on the frontier, but it signaled to Buchanan that his Utah campaign was quickly losing support. And it also told Colonel Johnston, who personally despised Latter-day Saints, that his troops were on their own, setting the groundwork for a negotiated peace and resolving a situation that easily could have spiraled into a bloodbath. At least in part, credit for this belongs to Sam Houston, the general, the statesman, the magnificent barbarian. 
Thank you for joining us on this episode of Adventures in Mormon History. A special thanks to historian Michael Scott Van Wagnen for his 2008 article in Utah Historical Quarterly, Sam Houston and the Utah War. I'm your host, Nate Olson.